Hello, thanks, for, thanks very much for coming this afternoon. Um, I'm Eka Esh and I'm the curator of uh, a forum, the talks program of 154 uh, Art Fair. It's my great pleasure to, uh, to welcome you this afternoon to, to our talk, Images of Africa, with a really great panel, uh, Marianne Yemsi, the Burhan Kagane, Rene Mousse, and our chair, Helen Jennings. Um, also, I have to deliver uh, an apology from uh, Ruth Say who is due to speak as part of this panel, unfortunately is ill and can't be here today. Um, uh, just briefly to introduce uh, Helen, who will introduce the, the rest of the panel. Uh, Helen Jennings is, is co-founder and editorial director of Natal, a uh, really great global media brand that celebrates contemporary African visual arts, fashion, music, and culture. Uh, Natal encompasses a digital platform, a series of curated events and exhibitions, and an annual print magazine, which is for, is for sale. Is it in our bookshop? It was a few freebies hanging around. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, get them where you can. Anyway, um, Helen is, author, is also author of the book, uh, New African Fashion, and has written essays uh, for publications, and or has written and contributed to publications, including The Guardian, Harper's Bazaar, Dazed ID, and other Newsweek and Sunday Times. Um, I'll leave it to her to introduce this panel. The only other thing I have to say is, um, is uh, the talk has been recorded, uh, for 154's uh, site and will be available via uh, SoundCloud. And I want to thank um, uh, Christie's Education for sponsoring uh, the forum programme. Uh, Thanks everyone for coming. Um, so our panel is Images of Africa. So in a very broad sweep, we're talking about recent surveys of African photography, both on the continent and around the world, and what they can possibly say about our ideas of Africanness. Um, and female voices within that context. Um, obviously, such surveys cover um, a wide range of topics, sense of place, history, gender, identity, and our panellists today have been very instrumental in either organising such shows or participating in them. So let me introduce everyone. This is Reni Masai. Uh, she is... Senior Curator and Head of Curatorial Archive and Research at the London-based arts charity Autograph ABP. This is where she manages a global programme of exhibitions, publishing and research initiatives. Recent shows um, at Rivington Place include Omar Victor Diop, Liberty Diaspora and Zanel Moholy, Hell the Dark Lioness. She also lectures internationally. Um, she's a regular guest curator at the Hutchins Centre for African and African-American Research at Harvard University. Um, we also have Marianne Yemsi, uh, independent art consultant and uh, curator based in Paris. She's founder of Asian Creatives, which promotes emerging African um, artists around the world and works with both public and private institutions. She's a member of the um, Artistic Committee at Some Art Projects, and also on the board of directors at Palais de Tokyo. Recent um, curatorial exhibitions include African Odysseys at the Brass, The Days That Come at Galleries Lafayette, and of course, uh, Afrito uh, Afrotopia, the Devon's edition of Bamako, Biennale just been. And finally, we have Lebe Kanye. Um, Joburg-based artist and photographer. She complete, completed her advanced photography program at the Market Photo Workshop, went on to study fine art at the University of Johannesburg. Um, she's had so many awards, it's just insane at this point. So we have <laughs> the Tierney Fellowship Award in 2012, which led to the first solo exhibition. Uh, winner of the Jury Prize at Bamako Encounters 2015, the Cap Prize in 2016. More recently, she's the Rise Art Global Artist of the Year and the Sassol New Signatures Competition 2017, which also led to a solo show at Pretoria Museum. It doesn't even end there. <laughs> Very accomplished young lady. Um, her work has been exhibited at the Prada Foundation, Macal, Digital Art. She's in the Walther Collection, the Pigozzi Collection. Uh, and here at 154, she's showing with um, Afronovia. And she's also an Echoes show up in Nottingham at the moment, um, Africa State of Mind. So that is everyone. Um, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about 
Natal's show. So we're, as Echo said, we're an online platform. We have our magazine, but we also have um, an annual photography show that we do every May at Red Tote Labs in Brooklyn. Um, so we're in our third year now, and it's a group photography show, and we very much focus on young and emerging photographers, um, African photographers and diaspora photographers. Um, and this year, we chose an all-female lineup. Um, so I thought it'd be good to show the video. We'll just give you a little flavour of our opening night, and I think it might wake us all up a little bit as well. <laughs> <coughs> So like, as you can see, at Natal, we like to keep things a bit spicy. So that was our launch night. Um, this year, we had um, six photographers. And I just want, and Ruth was one of them. So as she's not here, it'd be really nice just to show a bit of her work. So she grew up in southeastern Nigeria. And she's now based in West Yorkshire. And she also works in development. So photography really is kind of her, um, her side hustle. Um, which is a very impressive side hustle. So she works in portraiture and studio photography, um, and she focuses on celebrating Nigerian identity, specifically Ibu identity and culture. Um, and she often works very... She works in her own community with her own family. Um, it's a very collaborative process. Um, and I think what I really like about her work is it's just very, just very joyful and it's very expressive and it's very confident. Um, so she's done some great things. Like last year, she did a campaign for um, Kenzo with the filmmaker Akinola Davis Jr. Uh, she just shot a story for Garage magazine called Mew Mew Babes, which was genius. Um, and for Natal, she showed a, a personal project with a Simatis graduate, a fashion graduate called Moa Loa. And um, it, was min it was inspired by... And she kind of did create her own high-life music video. So these are sort of... And I really just like the way that it's so fantastical and so futuristic, but these are, you know, people are just expressing the way that they are. And another artist we showed was Alice Mann. So she's um, a young South African artist, so, so she's uh, based between Cape Town and London. And this is, we showed her, mo her current bodywork, which is called Drummies, and it's um, garnering a lot of interest um, at the moment. So she won the 217 Joan Wakelin bursary. She's a finalist for the International Women's Photographers Award. She's part of the Taylor Wessing Photographic Portrait Prize at the moment. And um, the series is based on some young drumming majorettes um, in a school in the Delft Township of Cape Town, and it is a very underprivileged area but she spent a lot of time with these girls. And um, she said what, what, they've, what they've expressed and what their teachers express is that being part of this um, majoretting group, um, and it competes across the country, and it gives them a sense of achievement and motivation. It's female-focused. It's goal-driven. It gives them a sense of discipline. And, and you know, she's very aware of being a white photographer, so... She spends a lot of time with the girls and she really doesn't direct them or anything like that. She just kind of lets them be. And she said they're so confident because they're performers anywhere. They're so confident in front of the camera. Yeah, it's my favourite. And then one last lady I want to present, um, Rona McKenzie. So she's a, a British uh, London-based photographer. So she obviously works a lot in um, fashion and portraiture, ID, Wonderland, Vogue, Show Studio. 
And she's also published her own photo book, Hard Ears. Um, and her work's really about celebrating a diverse beauty, whether that's age or race or body type. Um, and this is a story she actually did for uh, our launch issue, which I really... Uh, for, she said it was about migration and identity and how your passport uh, reflects you. But um, I think you'd be hard-pushed to see any of these in a, in a passport. But I absolutely love it, yeah. Just very real, very natural, very beautiful. Okay, that's it. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I apologize because my voice is a bit um, like, I don't know, Muppet Show style. Uh, I caught a call, but I will try my best with my imperfect English. Um, thank you, 154, for the invite. Thank you very much, uh, Echo, Ellen, who's been coordinating the panel and, um, and yeah, I'm happy to be here uh, with you. Uh, actually, I was very happy to be invited on the team, uh, the team of Freefall proposed by Echo Echon, because there's a starting point from which to explore black artistic practice as a strategy of innovation, resistance, and liberation. I was happy indeed because the Bamako encounters uh, had a lot to do with uh, the team of Freefall, and uh, I entitled this biennial, the biennial I curate, uh, Afrotopia. Uh, I borrowed the title from a Senegalese thinker, Felwin Starr. And actually, it has no theme. It was rather a manifesto. And I think that Freefall is also, in a way, a manifesto. Um, and the idea uh, developed by Felwin Starr is that uh, Africa doesn't need the Western world as a mirror. Uh, Africa is its own center, has its own tool to act for its destiny. So in, within the Biennale, the idea was not to replay in the art field the ideas developed by Felwin, but to use them as a catalyst and to respond to the injunction made by Franz Fanon in Les Damnés de la Terre, if we want humanity to take a step up, then we must invent, we must discover. So that's the only thing I gave to the artist, the definition of Afrotopia by Felwin Saar, and this quote by Franz Fanon. And this is also my way to curate. Uh, I really don't like the meta-narrative of a curator. Uh, so I really want to work to negotiate, to discuss with, with the artist. So uh, another important point uh, in the concept of this biennial was the immaterial production. They were as important as the different exhibitions. Uh, what I mean by immaterial production is the forum, the space for performances. In fact, this biennial for me was more a factory, uh, an idea of factories, if I can say so, translated from French, uh, a space uh, where we could share knowledge, meet, discuss, experiment. And I think that is, if we think about what is biennial, what should be a biennial today, I think, especially in Africa, I think it should be a space of uh, experimentation. So my my objective as a curator was to produce the framework in which the artist could feel free to experiment. Then uh, that's why we held a forum under the mango trees. And then I noticed uh, how important uh, the, the, the female photographer uh, where the contribution was really essential in that uh, uh, ideal factory, and because they were addressing the ideas of Africanists. But what was interesting was how they complicated these ideas by raising and exploring questions, often silenced from a marginalized position as women and as artists. So uh, this is something we are facing as curator as well. Um, they think they pointed out the discrepancy between the discourse about the position of women in African societies and the reality 
of their social condition. So the work would speak about the complex negotiations undertaken by women who must confront patriarchal structures in their daily life. So even though they don't consider themselves, most of the artists themselves, as political artists or feminist artists, I think they articulate notions of feminism that I would like to call the politics of the body. So I have prepared a selection of six artists from uh, the Pan-African exhibition I curated called uh, entitled Afrotopia, uh, same title. And uh, I think that by, I think the body speaks, they said, I remember an important show by Koyuko, like both body talks, and it's true that the body speaks and the works, the body serves as a tool, a representation or a field of investigation. So by sizing uh, on the body as a subject, object, or creative support, the artists undertake a political and social investigation on, of the here and now, whether in an autobiographical uh, form or in a more metapolitical form. So I just would like to start first so that you're in the mood of um, hearing those voices, because what was interesting also in the Bayanal was the, that they were very innovative in their artistic practice, uh, which and the content was very powerful as well. I would like to start with a one-minute clip uh, from a very important and quite striking work by Gabrielle Goliath. I will speak about her work after the video. It's one minute. Okay, so this is a clip prepared by Gabrielle, especially for uh, this talk. The installation, in fact, uh, as presented in Bamako, is a five-channel uh, video with all this woman. So I will maybe start my images. Thank you. Well, I can speak about Gabrielle's work because uh, you, you've seen the, the clip uh, by the time he's trying to fix that. And yes, it's a powerful video and I remember like the people after watching all that, she won actually a spe the special prize of the jury. So in a video, Gabrielle Goliath, she's South African, uh, presents the stories of women and non-binary people in South Africa. They're all victims of rape. And the victim speech is systematically interrupted in the editing. So one can say that no narrative emerges from the succession of gaps, uh, press, and click of the tongue. And in fact, on devoting this video to the victims, Gabrielle seeks to open up the discussion of South Africans' rape culture and the taboo attached to, to it. And it's clear that uh, viewers unease in the face of this inarticulated narrative speaks of the difficulties of dealing with taboo subjects that are dismissed as soon as they are raised. And this is the power of the work that we were discussing before. And I was saying that, you know, in the flow of information we receive all the day of violence against women, I think that that work speaks more to us. So this is the power of uh, the artist's work. 
I will show another <laughs> word, so I can... <laughs> yeah, fine, perfect. So, Lola Kiyuswash is uh, from Angola, and so now I have to hurry up because it's quick uh, without the, the click, and uh, the series called Stone Orgasms uh, uh, was uh, created in 2015. So again, I come back on Gabriel's Goliath work, it was, it was I think in 2015 or 13, so long before uh, the Me Too um, phenomenon and this and that, so it's something that they really needed to to, to speak, uh, we really need to speak about that. So in her series, she addresses the question of female genital mutilation. Like, you know, we had this uh, incredible photographer presented by Rene, uh, Ida Silvestri. Uh, now here, she abstract yet very carnal portraits fig fig figure the horror of some women's subjection to violent customary practices. She uses traditional representation, representation of women drawn from ethnographic photography, and she adds objects taken from geology or from the history of art that invade and recompose the body. And we, one can see that the faces is covered and we cannot identify the models. And what, one can say that the models become a kind of dolorous uh, icons. Um, yes, a disturbing uh, being that result might perhaps be seen as talismans against the violence done to women. And the next, I let you see the word. I also uh, include Karobat's Collective uh, in uh, the Pan-African exhibition. Uh, Karobat Collective is a Cairo-based collective of women artists founded in 2013. Uh, there's many members, May, Yvonne, Magdalena, Agar, Nadja, and Omne. So it's interesting to see that there are like Egyptian artists, but also foreign, foreign uh, artists. And what it's, this is a series, a photographic series, but it's all, also a kind of choreography and a performing act. And what the series is about, and was, they're trying to explore the in-between space. So we all, we might, you might have been to Egypt or in that country where women are not really welcome in a, in a public space. And so they are exploring this contact zone between public and private. And this zone is represented by the roofs uh, of the city's building, which appears to as both delimit delimiting and putting into question the space in which women are allowed to exist. Uh, you, one, you can see that the faces are often partly visible. Uh, the woman's body merge with the architectural elements uh, satellite disk, doors, murals, and yes, I think this is a, that the way they perform, the way they act, and through the series, uh, is a way to be visible, to make an appearance in a social and cultural context that doesn't easily admit uh, the presence of women in public space, and the roof offers a stage in which the margins of society make themselves manifest. Tumzile Kanyele, she is South African. She's a very young South African artist. Uh, I also presented a series. I think this is her very first series as an artist after um, uh, school. After school, she went at the market photo workshop. And, you know, again, you have to imagine all the series in the context of Mali. So, like, we really push the boundaries. And, but it was important if we want to question the realities of Africa today, this is also the reality. And in this series, Pumzile addresses the question of identity in the space of autonomy, of freedom in the context of a country, uh, South Africa, where gender and racial stereotypes are still prevailing. So the artist used our grandmother's wardrobe. This is very important too. She was alone, the grandmother didn't know that. She discovered that at the exhibition, in fact, the use of the wardrobe. 
But she, uh, she told me she's also a family, like for many reasons I won't develop here, but you know, she was also speaking about was what, what is never said you know, in a family, the silence, and this was a way to fight against that and a way to probably find a space uh, also. So it's a very beautiful visual language, very powerful work. So it's only a selection from the series each time. And in fact, it's, it's like many photographs in an installation with a red wall, balloons, you will understand why. So it's very, very striking. And there's more photography, but I, we agreed that we wouldn't show the one where she's <coughs> naked. And, uh, Zina Zaroviva, she's um, based in New York, uh, she's from Nigeria. She currently has a fantastic exhibition at Tiwani. Please go and see this exhibition. And with Zina, it was a three video triptych. This is a stills from uh, uh, the project. And in that work, she interrogates the traditional customs and more especially the mass culture in the region where she used to live in Nigeria. So the wearing of masks is generally confined to men. The masks are supposed to be too heavy for women, uh, but the same women uh, uh, have to carry much heavier uh, weight in the everyday uh, domestic task. So Zina formed an entirely female masquerade Troop investing this practice with, I think, a new emotional charge. So it's her body who appears and disappears. And herself here, the central image, she has a mask, but we don't know really if it's a mask or if she wants to hide herself. So by means of this uh, reappropriation, she calls into question the, the gender theory or stereotypes of those tradition, uh, traditional customs and societies. And the last artist from my selection is Rahim Agombo. Uh, you've seen <coughs> in uh, Ellen's clip a few images. It was very, very quick. Uh, Rahim uh, was born in London but lives and works in uh, Nigeria. Uh, it is a very important series, a kind of ongoing work. Uh, the title is very important because the title is Education is Forbidden, and uh, Boko Haram means Western education is forbidden. That's the translation for Boko Haram. So in this series, Rehima explores the traumatic consequences of Boko Haram attacks uh, in the north of Nigeria like the attacks of uh, schools and universities amongst uh, other criminal acts. And she spent time with young students who suffered, uh, but who decided after a while to come back, to return to education. So unlike the usual coverage of media, her approach is focused on individuals and how they cope. Um, for me, the work, this work by Rahima forms a process of reflection, activism, and pedagogical intervention around the question of education. And this question is central in Nigeria and everywhere else uh, on the continent. So it's, uh, it's not only photographs, but also videos, writing, archive. So she has a blog. You can go on the blog and follow the project. It's absolutely incredible. So it would be, I think, a nonsense to generalize uh, with only six examples. But I think it was great to discover these voices because there are important voices. And they also have a, a very you know, innovative, very creative language, visual language. And of course, this, those, all those artists, they only wish to represent themselves. But I think that from each individual viewpoint, 
one can imagine the contemporary realities by fragments. And I like the idea that it's not probably the reality, but it's the way they are seeing the reality from their position. Uh, should they create new narratives? But it's a way to approach those realities. And I think one can also see the connection between poetry and politics in this series. So the commitment can be seen as an act of resistance, which with each work being an act of conquest uh, and presence in the world. So at the time when certain patriarchal values are making uh, a comeback, uh, I think we must be aware of the danger lying ahead and think that those voices help us raise, I don't know, help us to be more conscious uh, about that. They make trouble, they, this were calling into question, and it is not necessarily a call to arms, but a more <coughs> complex revelation on the dark side or the side that are hidden or silence. In fact, I think that they call that part of us which refuses to remain silent in the words of the poet Audre Lorde. And I would like to finish with a few words I found uh, on Raima uh, Insta, Instagram. And I think they are beautiful because it says a lot. And that was said also in the community we formed in Bamako. She wrote, community has been an aspirational word for me to commune in unity with others, to be part of a wider circle, to be a link amongst other links in an unending chain that crosses time, space, and geographic location, a link in a formless chain made up of dreams, ideas, and light. The name? The name uh, Gabrielle Goliath. Um, afternoon, everyone. I'm Lebohang, and I'm going to be presenting a few bodies of work that I did over the last few years. Um, and this is a body of work that's actually showing um, here at the fair um, at Afronova Gallery booth. Um, and it's, um, it's, it, it basically forms part of a two-part project, um, which is called Gele Falaka. And this is a body of work that I think um, almost happened by itself um, because I wasn't really um, thinking about creating a photography project, I think, when I started this process. Um, and it basically started, um, it was about two years after my mother had passed away. So I was looking at our family photo albums um, quite casually um, and almost in remembrance and and looking at and like as I was looking at them I kept on realizing that um, a lot of the clothes that my mother was wearing in these photographs um, were still in her wardrobe and these are clothes that she had worn um, in I think her late 20s to like till her 30s um, and so I then found the exact locations um, that she had been photographed. Um, most of them were taken in my grandmother's yard. <clears throat> but through my grandmother's help, who's still alive, I then found um, the, the locations, other locations. Um, and I then went on a journey to try and almost trace back, <coughs> almost be in the same place um, as she was um, while she was alive. Um, and I mean, as you can see with some of the photos as well, that um, like this is my grandmother's house, my grandmother's lounge. Um, I'm not wearing the same dress or um, as her, but the chair is still the same. It's like she's she was like, you know, we're basically sitting in the same chair, so many years apart, and obviously so many miles apart. Um, so the work, I think, for me became a almost trying to continue a conversation, I think, between mother and daughter, but it also became about um, connecting myself and my younger sister and my grandmother um, together through this process, because um, <clears throat> my younger sister was the one who took a lot of the photos, so we'd, we'd go on this um, journey looking for the locations together, and 
she'd be the one behind the camera and I'd set it up and then she, you know, we would have like the original of the photo and she'd tell me, no, pose like this, move your arm like this, do that, you know, and for me, it, I think without really being conscious, conscious of, the, of what was happening during that period, I think for the three of us, but it really allowed for us to have a conversation about um, what losing a parent or losing a daughter for my grandmother had meant. And obviously me having to take on the role of being a mother to my sister and what that meant. Um, but also to have, to almost go through a process that became quite therapeutic, I think for the three of us. Um, and I don't know if at the time I, I had any of those realizations. I think it was afterwards in thinking about you know, the journey that we'd taken over the 12 months um, together. Um, and obviously the places had changed over time, so there are also um, traces of how the places remain the same, but also how it's changed over the time. So in the process of me merging, because initially, um, sorry, I've got flu. Um, initially the, the project started with um, these single images. So it started with me really thinking or planning to show them next to each other um, when I eventually realized that it actually was a project because I think initially it was never really meant to be a project. Um, so I imagine that I'd, I'd place the two photos, my mother's photo and mine, next to each other. But um, as the project um, um, kind of developed and almost, um, it, it made more sense, I think, to to make them one image. Um, and I think that's, that that all really speaks to this idea of someone's spirit living on. Um, and also the fact that I think, you know, when you imagine, you imagine someone is passed on as being the spirit but, and being this ghost. But I think in the process, you know, like this is, this really became about the fact that I had also become a ghost, you know. Um, I was placing myself in a time in a space that, or trying to hold on to a space that I was not really a part of. Um, but also I'd become a ghost of her, in a way, um, by having to take on the role that she, she was playing um, to, my, to myself and my younger sister. <clears throat> I think for me, an image like that, I think, is quite interesting um, in thinking about it now, you know, because that was myself when I was one years old. Um, it was my one-year-old birthday party. <laughs> um, so to almost think about myself or even look at myself and just the journey um, that we've taken together um, and almost continue to take together so many years later. But it's almost, you know, like even in looking at it now, like realizing that objects almost become an archive in themselves, besides photographs being an archive, that it's, you know, I mean, these are like earrings that she was wearing when I was one years old and she'd kept them, you know, and I was able to wear them to reenact or to, um, to, to reenact this, this image. Um, and then the next body of work, um, so it's a two-part project, so these almost happened around the same time. And um, this project was very different and is a very different language to the previous body of work, but they both speak to family and to loss and to almost trying to trace back a family history, um, mainly my, fam my mother's side of the family. And I spent the next 12 months going on a journey of um, Going, going around the country, basically trying to locate the rest of my family. Um, and the reason that happened, again, um, was through a conversation with my grandmother, who obviously after my mother had passed away, I was still studying at the time. So she came in and moved in with us, um, with myself and my sister. So we obviously had lots of conversations around the family and and her being there and you know having the rest of my family come come there every now and again, um, I started thinking about the surname because all of us had the same surname, but it was spelled in like four different ways. Um, and I started um, thinking about how, why that is, besides it being um, recorded sometimes, having been recorded wrong um, by officials during apartheid, but also it was around the fact that my family had moved um, through so many places around South Africa because during apartheid, because of forced removals, but also because um, 
because they, they, <clears throat> they worked on farms, so they were farm laborers. So they had to go from this farm, and if, you know, for whatever reasons, then they were chased off that farm, then they went to another farm. Um, and as apartheid ended, obviously, um, the farms went into new ownership. Um, anyway, so let me talk about this image first. <laughs> so, so this basically um, became a story that, that, that started this project about how my grandfather was the first one to move to the city um, from, from the Free State, to move to Johannesburg from the Free State. And um, as apartheid ended and the rest of my family, um, because he didn't want to be on the, he didn't want to work on the farm. So he was the first one that, you know, refused to be a farm laborer. So he was like, he's going to go to look for work. And he went to the city. And um, as apartheid was ending, and, you know, my, I think my family got chased off the, the farm that they stayed on the longest in the free state. And they all kind of came to the city um, through him. So everyone kind of has lived in his house. Um, so this is basically a story about them coming, um, coming to the city through him. And the images that are used are family photos um, from the photo albums, which I collected as I was traveling around the country and doing research on the project. And then others, um, it's the cityscape. It's buildings of Johannesburg today. <clears throat> and um, I, was, I was doing a lot of voice recordings with my family members as, as, I, was, um, as I was traveling, and the stories that I, that I chose to use for this project are stories that kept on coming up, that kept on being repeated by different, different family members that I met. Um, and I basically restage or reenact these stories um, and by wearing like a suit because my my grandfather I didn't know him but I'm I'm reenacting him because he kind of became central to my family coming to the city, so I reenact him by wearing a suit because he was always in a, I don't know him but I know him as the man in the suit because of the all the photographs that I've collected, um, of him and he's always in a suit um, which I think speaks quite closely to the previous body of work which is around the fact that, you know there's no way he was always wearing a suit because he. When he came to the city, he worked in a factory. Um, but it's the fact that you know photography was that space that allowed a lot of black people to perform, um, to perform being people that they're not. So it almost becomes, you know, like it becomes like an erasure of reality because we think about photography as like a, a tool of evidence, but actually you realize when you when you look at family photographs that it's actually not, that it's it's it, it provided a space for them to perform, even how um, um, photo albums are put together because in, th in looking at my fo my family photo albums, they have like inscriptions, they have cutouts from magazines of like flowers and like words, and it's like on a sunny Sunday afternoon, things like that, you know. And it's like, you know, <laughs> um, but it's almost like how they scripted. Um, so it became like a like an imaginary. It's like a fairy tale book. It's like these children books. Um, so, so even in the language that I then chose to, to that I almost imagined these, these stories that I was being told by my family, um, I almost took on the same language of them being fantastical um, because in how they wrote um, and how they constructed these um, photo albums, it was such a similar fantastical, far from reality um, language, um, which really didn't speak true to what their reality was. Um, so this is a story about my grandfather, who, who apparently used to drink a lot, and he, so he had to wake up for work at like 4 a.m., but he'd like set his time for like 3 a.m., and he'd wake everyone up after bathing and realizing it's an hour early. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so, and then I got my grandmother to, um, to, to um, sit on the bed, and we, we kind of played it out in order to create these, these sets. Uh, and this is a story about how you know he was he was drunk one day and they brought him <coughs> home um, on a wheelbarrow because he couldn't walk. Um, I think he got mugged on on a day. Um, so I mean the the stories that I chose to work with because there's so many of them became the stories that I that kept on being repeated by so many different people that almost stuck with them um, over the years. So those are the the scenes that I chose to work with. And this is the last one from this body of work, um, and it's called The Suit, and it's an image of him. Um, 
and then I'll quickly show two films and wrap it up. show another one which is a more recent body of work um, and I think that the direction of the work has moved more in, in, um, in, in, <laughs> in, in installation um, and this speaks to where the almost continues from where the previous works began um, but I think in as much as I come from a photography background, but I think the work is moving more and more in the, the direction of installation and, and film. And this is the, the latest film. <clears throat>
Thank you. We have like three minutes left. Um, <laughs> ten, ten. Okay, ten, good. Okay. So I'm going to throw it straight out to you guys because I'm sure that's, there's been a lot of information there. Very powerful artist presented. So has anyone got a question? Just a very quick one, Lenny. There's an artist there. I missed her name. Oh, there's a, a mic there. Sorry. Just a very quick one. There's an artist sure. that I missed her name one in the gold and <laughs> black and that they climped like... Lena Iris Victor. Lena? Lena. Lena. Iris and Victor with a K. Victor, that's great. Thank you. You're welcome. Question. Another question here. Hi. Hi. Uh, uh, also, there's a lady with a mic. Over you, there. you need the mic. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Um, as a South African, um, having sort of visited these exhibitions and these spaces. I'm, I'm quite intrigued and as a South African yourself exhibiting here or talking about your work, um, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face getting your work out here? And over the last few years, there seems to be a real rush for content, well, content of the continent in a way. Are you, f um, yeah, how, how have you found getting your work out here just in terms of support and platforms? But then also, it's sitting in the sort of framework of the West. Um, I think, I think I'm realizing that there's a lot of demand. I think for for African art um, from the West, and I don't know if I don't know if it's a negative thing, but I think it's in many ways it's a positive thing, right? Um, for me, it's been. It's been quite a journey, I mean, to, to get to this point. Um, I don't think it's easy, the career of being an artist. I, I'm not, I can't speak globally, but I'm saying as a South African artist, I don't think it's easy. Um, because it's, it's also such a small pool of galleries, and that's, that's a system that you kind of have to belong in and be a part of um, to get your work out there. But it's a small pool, and there's so many art graduates, um, and not all of them are going to be part of the, the galleries. Um, and not all of them are going to be part of the big galleries. Um, and even the ones that are part of the big galleries, not all of them are going to get um, as much exposure um, as the, the big artists. So I mean, there are challenges in terms of in terms of that. But I think that one thing that I've <clears throat> that I made a decision to do, I think from from after after studying photography um, and not really being sure if I wanted to even be in the world of arts, which I'm still not even till today, um, was to to really t be active in in my career. So to to be active in terms of choosing. Um, choosing like where do I want to be represented? Um, lots of proposal writings, um, so not not depend on a gallery system, and I think that in that way, then you almost um, you provide or you align yourself with with opportunities and putting yourself on platforms, even when a gallery system is unable to put you on those platforms. So I think that. Yeah, artists also need to be active in their careers and not expected to come from an institution um, because even the institutions, they have a lot of people that, they, that they're trying to market or this or that. So I think that it's important for you to be, an, to be active, an active participant, not just in the creating of art, but in your own management. And this is the <clears throat> talking about you know, some of the, the logistics of getting work off the continent in a way, the cost of that, the insurance, this, that, and all the other. That, um, you know, how have you found, I mean, it's, it's very different, I guess, working digitally or being able to um, take your work or it, it, it being carried very differently. But have you, um, I feel like this, this conversation is very different back home in a way. You know, it, it's like you say, it's hungry here. It's very, um, but back home it still feels like, it still feels quite suffocating. Quite small. Um, it feels like two very different conversations, one here and back home. Um. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know about that. I think there's, there's, 
there's a, I think there's a demand from African art, but there's actually a demand because there's good African art, yes. you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's not yes. that there's like a demand because there's like, you know, because there's like a new trend. Africa's like the new trending thing. But I think because there's good African art, you know? And it's not it's not that necessary to even say African art. You yeah, know? I would there's, say artists, good artists from, from Africa. Africa, you know, so... And there are obviously logistical issues for getting your work there, for doing that, but there's still good art from Africa, you know, and all of those things I think you, you deal with because they, they, they come with it. I mean, it's like coming here and being on a really long flight and having to give a talk and do that. It's like, it comes with it. It's like, you know, and you're only maybe here for two days and then you have to go back and be on a really long flight and, you know, it comes with it, unfortunately, you know. I found it interesting formalistically to see how um, shadows plays very important role in the um, animation ones. It's like activating the space and the objects and the, um, and the figures. And then in the first series where you dress with your mother's clothes, you kind of um, you kind of function as the shadows in the other, so I find it formalistically interesting. Is that something that you thought about? Um, I think the I think the shadow thing is almost carrying on throughout throughout the work because I think they, they, you have to find a, a visual way to almost activate the the archives, you know. And I think that this ghost effect or the shadow effect is is a way to activate the archives, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, you were going to say what brought all your performance, all your exhibitions together, Rene? I think more than anything else, what I was trying to do was to look at individual practices. Mm-hmm. Um, I very rarely engage in group shows. There are group shows I would like to do at some point in the future, but at this point, what, what, what I am and what also we as an agency are most interested in, I guess, is ideas and specific practices to be able to have an in-depth conversation mm-hmm. with those artists' work and, and, and where they position themselves. And I see those four artists and their practice as a series of propositions and interventions. And um, the way that the autobiographical and the personal meets a kind of wider socio-political conversation around, as I mentioned, I think, in the context of Zanelle Muholi's work in terms of social justice, in terms of human rights, in terms of the question around representation and visibility, and also this sort of like use of, of their practice as a kind of cathartic tool of self-care. You mentioned Audrey Lord, I think, and there was this, this quote that I carry with me at the moment whenever I... Uh, I, I do the work that I do curatorially, and it's around self-care also as a, as a tool of political welfare, I think is the words that Audre Lorde used. And um, I think in, in many ways, the, the practice of, of each of those artistic craft is incredible. They're all dedicated and committed and incredibly skilled in terms of their craft, whether it's photography, whether it's the multidisciplinary approaches, whether it's Lena Iris Victor's craft. There's an investment in the craft, but that craft and that investment doesn't overshadow their political and socio-cultural um, um, dedication and commitment to the issues that they're trying to talk about. And often they come from a personal space. Mm-hmm. Um, but also one other thing I should say is those four artists, uh, aside from the work, aside from the fact that two of them are existing autograph shows stroke publications, which are currently on the road, and Phoebe Boswell and Lena Iris Victor's shows are both in development. There are also four artists I'm um, having a very intimate, in-depth conversation with, a kind of curatorial artistic dialogue with Zanella Muholi that's already been published in the Aperture book. It's a 12,000-word um, extended-in conversation with um, Lina Iris Victor. It's in progress. It comes in the first iteration of it is going to be published in the publication that accompanies her Noma exhibition that opens this weekend. And then the second iteration will be in the autograph show and publication. And with Phoebe Boswell and with Ada Silvestri, it's also an ongoing dialogue that really is a kind of platform for the artist's voice. It's like I'm not at this point so interested in a curatorial voice on top of those artistic endeavors. I really want to have these conversations that very, very deeply go into the, the reasons behind the work, very kind of like personal. Um, and, um, and so they are kind of like an, an, a visual and textual conversation that I'm trying to bring together in different ways. 
And conversely for you, Marianne. I mean, yeah, I agree with you. I also like uh, to work with artists like Du Solo Show. I did the recent one at the Palais de Tokyo with a very young South African artist, uh, Bronwyn Katz. And she stayed in Paris three months. And I knew her before for many years. She was still at school when uh, we met. So it's really, and she's also working in the collective IKEA. So for me, it's really important to have that conversation with an artist. But then, coming back on, yes, I curated uh, the uh, Bayano. So, but when I accepted this invitation, I said, okay, um, I have my way to curate. Uh, I'm not going to use a theme, as I said before. It's going to be more a manifesto. And I think that, in a way, we curator, we should be more modest. We should leave more space to the artist. And I think most of the time it's more, uh, what do you say, a soliloque, like the curator like developing something and really doesn't care about the artist. They just have to fit in uh, the work, have to fit in the statement. So I'm not interested in working the way. I'm interested in the encounters, in how I can help, I can give space uh, for an artist to... Yeah, to develop his work, to, to be visible, because, you know, I'm based in Paris, in Europe. I've been working, uh, making more artists visible. It's true that I have an interest in, uh, in making more women artists visible, because it's more difficult for them. Uh, but, well, it's, uh, I'm interested in those new voices and how we can work together. So the Bayana, uh, what I've tried, again, is to... And I do that for all the projects. Usually we start the conversation, usually it's with literature, like mm -hmm. African literature or something. For me, I go outside of the art world. I don't bring a text. I bring, like, quotes, and we discuss. And uh, Because I think that what the interest of doing a group show, like in a, in a Kunsthaler or a Biennale, is, like, you bring people together. And it's not like they should all agree, it's interesting, those confrontation. Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested in that. And I think that the more you let them develop their ideas and uh, exchange uh, all together, I think that in the end, it's something that is larger than uh, each artist, larger than me. And that's this, uh, yes, what, why I like to curate, really. Mm. Yeah. So. But also when you are able to see a dialogue between the different artists, yes. work, which is really yeah, interesting in your presentation. Like the dialogue between yeah. them, it's, it's all you have to create. It. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. But even the artist you were showing also, there's a dialogue with Ada Silvestri's work yeah. around FGM. I didn't notice, for instance. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things also with the way you work with, mm. within the group shows. It's really wonderful when the thematics mm. override the fact that we have a kind of like a conglomeration of artists from a certain specific cultural space. I think that's always very problematic, but when the thematics work, when there is a, a clear theme that arises, the work and the group show becomes so much more interesting. And when we can see them as mini solo shows in a way, but the thematics that they're dealing with connects them rather than cultural specific. But maybe we were a little bit far from the team, but not at all equal. Uh, because, you know, you told us that when you have our first reaction, oh, we're going to, our exhibition, our kind of survey of the reality. No, they're not. <laughs> but in a way, they are. They are. Of course, they are. But, yeah, yeah. I think the artists help us to <coughs> see the reality in another way, and uh, it's interesting for that. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, look, clearly this is a conversation <laughs> to continue to have for a very long time. You know, I do want to thank all of you for being here, and please join me in thanking our, our wonderful panel, Helen Jennings, René Mousset, Le Bohank Gagne, and Marianne Yemsi. Thank you very much.